0: Chris was just flexing into the camera because we're talking about uh, a weightlifting program his son, one of his sons, would like to try. But anyway, we are super excited to have our guest on the show today. Who is our guest, Chris? Ollie. <laughs> Dr. Alejandra Nunez de la Mora, who is wonderfully involved in the Human Biology Association. She's a very thoughtful and kind individual as well. Uh, and she is a researcher and full-time teacher and coordinator of the Gender and Community Health Academic Body of the Veracruzana University Zalapa campus. Uh, and she currently co-directs a multidisciplinary project dedicated to investigating the effects of agricultural practices on food security, human ecology, and maternal and child health in a rural community in Veracruz, Mexico. And she's- oh, Ollie. Ollie, I, I don't know if she's ever told me it's okay to call her that. So I've avoided it at this point. Uh, oh
1: i just saw that she signs her name that way so i'm acting like i know her super super well i mean we all know her we do
0: we do and she's gonna be in the the academic special issue with us as well which is really wonderful but she's like the first person we've had on the show where we typically like what paper do you want to talk about and she's like i don't want to talk about a paper i want to talk about like deeper shit so let's bring her on yeah Yeah. i'm super excited Hello. hello hello Welcome to the sausage of Science, all I have here, We're so excited to have you.
2: Yeah, I'm excited too. Thank you. You're Thank also you the first person to mirror all my requests.
0: No one has ever mirrored my like hands in the air gesture, so I appreciate it.
2: <laughs> Makes me feel so. Well, I usually, I'm usually a big hugger, so I haven't hugged people for some time. I need some right? hugging.
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm a hugger too, and it's really, really hard. And now I just like... I like dart away from people.
2: <laughs> I know. So well, next time we see each other, we'll hug very hard.
0: Yay. Very exciting. Very exciting. Yes. Uh, anyway, so thank you so much for taking the time out today. I, I know things are busy for you and I, I know your kids are still schooling at home until Monday. Yay. Uh, when yes. they get to go back in it's person. It's going to be,
2: a, I know it's, it's, it's very, very exciting and. It, it's hard to believe it's been so long
0: yes. they're not going to
2: go full time but at least once once or twice a week for now and i understand the school wants to take small steps so we're, what we are need their ages? um i have a 12 year old and a nine year old so they're still in primary school and um they go to montessori so that helps because it's multi-level multi-group multi you know so that makes things easier
1: mixed age
2: yeah yeah they have um the group my kids are in it's it's 20 kids with two guides and they are from 8 to 12. so mine are graduating
1: high school this coming week and they have been at home for the last year and it's totally just they've just drifted away from their whole high school cohort it's oh it's, it's, it's a little painful
2: I know, I understand. I I read that and I I didn't I didn't know you had triplets for to begin with, which is oh my god, I can't even think. And uh I I hear you because for me beyond the academic achievement, which I'm not very worried about cuz they're both really, you know, up to speed and they're quick kids, but it's the social aspect and especially for Milena, she she finishes her primary school this year so it's typically a year where they have camps and they you know work together to gather money to pay for their camping trip etc and they haven't had that so it, it I feel it a bit like a loss but maybe mm-hmm. it's she does too but I think I'm I'm sadder than her
1: <laughs> well we're in the same situation because both of us you know we you know when we were teenagers, we were teenagers, and we stopped at all the activities. But as parents, we're like, "I want to go to the football game, I want to go see the marching band. Yes. I want to go to all the activities." And yes, it didn't happen,
2: yes, absolutely, but hopefully they have another big stage ahead of them, and they'll they'll thrive and they'll enjoy it and
0: I'm sure I, mean, I try
2: to remind them, yeah we talk we talk about all these things, and I say, you know, in a way this is our historic moment right mm,
0: yeah so I, I very much wonder i have a 2 year old nephew he just turned 2 this april like right. what his facial recognition and social like <laughs> I know. what it's going to be like during this like really formative time uh, because you know so much of his little life has been people i know for like mom dad and sister so it's going to be yes yeah.
2: Well, good thing that he's got a sister. I have a nephew, too, who's nine months old. And the other day, my sister-in-law said, oh, look, it's first interaction with another baby. And I thought, oh, oh my God, right? Like nine months Mm -hmm. with only your mom and your dad as interaction. That must have shaped something in your brain. I mean, that hopefully looks reversible and totally, you know, plastic. And I'm not going mm -hmm. to worry, but. It was very shocking.
0: This, like the research for the next several decades, um, you <laughs> know. know, the the long enduring impacts of this pandemic, it's going to be very yeah. interesting and likely upsetting. Uh, although hopefully yeah. there's some uplifting parts about resiliency and, and you know, pulling through. Absolutely. It'll keep yeah. us in business. True. Yeah. <laughs> Just handing out the dissertation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, exactly. Anyway, anyway, this, since this time is going to be so formative in people's academic journeys, we want to hear about your journey. Uh, how did you get interested and know about anthropology and why did you try to pursue it? And I shouldn't say try. You have successfully pursued it as you <laughs> <Thank you. laughs>
2: I try my best. Well, actually, it was a very non-planned path. I was trained as a biomedical researcher of all things. And for my last year in Mexico, you usually have to do a one-year thesis. So I was literally walking through the school one day and saw an advert looking for someone who um, had some lab skills to run some hormone analysis, and and I did, and the call was for someone to come over to do some field work with seabirds with the blue-footed boobies, and so I thought, oh, that sounds interesting, so I literally picked a piece of paper and um, I don't think there was email then I just went and saw the the professor and he interviewed me and said the job is yours and that changed my life forever so after being in the lab for four years and I loved it actually I have to say I, I really enjoyed my undergrad um, I was suddenly you know wearing my shorts and a hat in a remote island off the Pacific coast in Mexico in Nayarit and I stayed there for four months doing behavioral work with seabirds and collecting blood samples and and after that um so that changed forever because I discovered field work I discovered what it is to have everything out of control you know, after being in the lab with biomedical questions where you control for almost everything, then you had nature around you and your know, tiny question and all the noise. So that was very, very attractive. And then for the next five to six years, I, I volunteered and I was part of several research teams doing work with seabirds in, in the remotest places. And then once I was um, in St. John's, Newfoundland, waiting for the Canadian Wildlife Service ship to take us away to the Canada Islands where we would spend the summer. And the A's was so thick that we couldn't leave. So by then I had already decided that I wanted to do some grad studies. So I was, but you have to imagine this was before um, the World Wide Web. So everything had to be done by hand. So I went to the university's library. They let me in, and I spent many mornings while the ice thought, uh, just going through the big, thick, fat books of careers, right, and programs, and so on. So browsing one day, I just happened to stumble with um, the programs in biological anthropology. So I started reading the curriculum, and, and I thought, oh this is it, this is what I want to do. And then I started doing a bit of research and I uh, found Peter Allison's 1993 paper, just freshly published. And when I read that, I thought, this is my call, this is it. Then um, there was a very long path of applying and doing all the English tests and sending your papers through the post and getting responses and waiting for funding. And then I found myself in Cambridge uh, doing an MPhil in biological anthropology, and I learned in a year what I hadn't in like twenty years. So it was a very tough year, but it was just very exciting and stimulating. And I, I was, I knew that was where I wanted to be. So that's been my path to anthropology. And as I've gone along, I've Oftentimes I find myself thinking, oh, this is this is cool. This is this is what I like doing. I'm happy. Yeah.
1: Man, you're giving me flashbacks. I remember sitting around with those thick books looking yes. through for grad programs. I know. I can't even imagine now, like as grad director, having to answer my phone every time it rings with students actually calling me because I don't even have my ringer on. I'm like I know. Send or me send email.
2: Or send a letter, right? I, I did all my applications by post, like actually go to the post office and pay for stamps and wait for three months for answers to come back. And um, I realize now how lost we were in terms of what we needed to do to, to apply to foreign universities and foreign programs. And I must have been very determined because, <laughs> you know, there was no guidance. Obviously, some of my professors had been um, in foreign universities, in foreign programs, but it, it was all very relational. Like you knew someone who had a professor who had been a mentor, so there were kind of more individual recommendations. This idea of different programs available for you to choose from was not.
1: We, we mentioned where you are at the beginning, but just let's refresh. We're, so where are you right now? Where, we don't we, Most of our interviews are in North America. We've had a few exceptions. You're our first, I believe you're the first person we've interviewed who is in Mexico. Where in Mexico are you?
2: Well, I am in Jalapa, which is the capital city of the state of Veracruz. Um, it's the state that runs along the Gulf of Mexico. A very long thin one and I am part of the University of the universidad Veracruzana which is the state University in Veracruz is one of the largest and longer standing universities in the country
1: and for again like I think we mentioned this on a previous episode but you chaired the session in our recent meetings on place-based uh, we had a place-based session so folks, we had several presenters from Mexico in that session, and that was a, a unique thing. And one of the things that we're trying to get at in the Human Bio Association, but on this podcast to an extent as well, is to sort of understand the logistics of the discipline and and and, and research. And as you said, you're less interested in diving into a specific paper and and talking more broadly, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit, you would know more than maybe, definitely me, maybe me and Kara, about how anthropology and human biology in Mexico compares to how it's being practiced here in the U.S. What's your experience?
2: Well, that's a really interesting question, uh, Chris, because as I mentioned earlier, I was trained in biomedical research in a very different discipline in a I mean, at the National University, which is the largest university in the country, but I never saw an anthropologist in my life before. And because I spent quite a bit of time um, away from Mexico, when I returned, I was an outsider. I didn't have a network of anthropologists or human biologists, or I didn't know anyone in any of the schools. Who are normally the the um, the we, of anthropologists in the country? So, Leskona Nacional de Antropologia Historia, which is the National History and Anthropology School, which has been the traditionally the the center of the field. I didn't know anybody. Nobody knew me. Nobody knew my work. I didn't know anybody's work. So. It was like starting from scratch. And to this day, um, most of my colleagues, my interactions, my collaborations are with the network I built while a grad student. In the last five years that I've been, well, I've been back in Mexico for longer than that, but after I finally established myself in an institution, I've, I've done, I've actively sought out to and reached out to my local colleagues. So now I feel I have a bit, a, a little bit better idea of, of what is going on. I have now taught at Ina, the School of Anthropology and History, as an invited lecturer for two terms. So I've gotten to know some of the students and some of my colleagues. I now have a few students which I co-mentor so that has brought me closer to the community and the HBA session that you mentioned was a big opportunity for me to reach out to my colleagues which I don't know also was an interest of me introducing myself to the community but also identifying ourselves as a group that might go to the HBA as a group and not only as an individual so Um, In answer to your specific question, um, there's a very long tradition of physical anthropology in Mexico, probably even before uh, some of the very long standing programs in North America started. There was already a very big movement in Mexico, as almost in any other place. It's been shaped and colored by the historical and political and ideological environment right? We're all product of our own histories. And, um, and now what I see now, a little bit from afar, because as I say, I wouldn't dare say I am part of that um, group of anthropologists. I think there's a lot of new fresh blood who's now interacting with other disciplines. And I, I you know, there, there's a lot of uh, great work being done, a, a lot more multidisciplinary. In its origin, it was very focused on growth, development. You know, physical anthropology uh, very strongly focused on that. I guess it was the times, right? Very strongly on social and cultural anthropology and um, ethnography, documenting the enormous diversity that we have in the country, of course. And now I see a lot of the younger scholars reaching out and doing collaborations in genetics and molecular evolution. And so I think the diversity, it's, it's, it's clear now, and I'm excited to be part of that.
0: We can no longer mm. sit in our academic and research silos. We we just can't. Yeah. Uh, and we also can only know so much, <laughs> which is why you collaborate. We exactly. can't be experts in everything. Absolutely. One thing that I've always very much admired about you, Alejandra, is that you truly do stand on all three legs of academia with, with your research, your teaching, and your service. I, I know you're very committed to both your teaching and, and your mentorship, which often kind of crosses all three of those legs of academia of teaching, research, and service. Uh, But first, let's start with the research uh, to just kind of hear where you're at now. Uh, I I know you do a number of things with maternal and child health, but I'd like to hear in your own words of of where your research program is and maybe how it's had to go into a standstill these past past 15, 16 months and, you know, where you see it heading.
2: Yeah, well, um, I'm not sure I have a program as such. Right. And this is why I when you ask me, why do you want to talk? And I think what I want to share is what's been my experience recently in terms of how the circumstances have shaped much of what I've done in the last few years. Um, as I mentioned, when I returned from from England and I found myself alone <laughs> in a new place because this is not my city of birth either. So it was everything changed. And my husband and I came to Jalapa established here, it took some time to find jobs for both and get to know the community get to know the people, etc. And um, I had some ideas of what I wanted to do, but I had no funding, right. And so it took a while. And a former colleague of mine, or a friend whom I met at the university in the National University in my early years, called me one day and said, "You know, I've been working." She's an um, she's an ecologist who works in soil ecology and agricultural production, and so on. And she said, "There's a project I'm collaborating with in a small rural community near Jalapa, and we need someone who's interested in." health and child, maternal health, would you be up for collaborating? And I thought, well, sure. So that was the beginning of the Demano project. In fact, my other collaborator, Guadalupe Amesco, had been present in the community for a few years already. She arrived in the community not with an academic research perspective, but more of a intervention social community she's a psychologist she's interested in child development but more of the you know applied hands-on idea and so between the three of us built this program which we got funding for and started documenting from scratch what the community was like you know that we started with the census we to identifying what the problematic problems were and where we could find interesting questions that could come together as a whole. So we found that having the food insecurity line as a point of contact between all the different aspects of the program would be a good one. So uh, the idea was to set up a model of how Um, agricultural management and um, how local people use and manage their milpas which is these cornfields and and which also cultivate many other varieties and they depend on it for at least the basic intake how that affects the whole community dynamics and health of their members so that's where I came in and we've been working there for six years now, and it has been a very steep curve for me in many respects. It's been a very challenging experience, very rewarding and a very happy one, but challenging in the sense that it's always very easy to say, oh, we love multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary and different you know approaches to work in the field as applied and incidents and research and basic but oh my when it really comes down to meeting everybody's needs and everybody's expectations and everybody's methods it's hard and I quickly realized that some of the practices that we have as biological anthropologists are non-compatible with many of the other methods and approaches that other people may have so that was very challenging well in this particular case it was very clear that some of us in the team had a more scientific perspective and that you know we need to be rigorous about not bias our data collection and how you interact with people so that it's a very fine balance, right? To to, to interact with people and be part of or try to respond to their interests and their needs, but at the same time, keep your distance so that you don't generate the type of relationships but that might lead to bias or information that is not exactly what you would consider under the scientific paradigm objective, right? (laughs) And then you have the other perspective where people are there to actually solve a problem Mm -hmm. regardless of how they do it. And there were a few times where the tensions were very palpable and the negotiation was not always easy. So that was a big, 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 big learning curve, and I think I'm better for it, but it was not easy.
1: Yeah. So, so as as you know, um, one of our threads on this podcast is the hacks for succeeding yes. in academia, right? And you're part of that supplementary special issue of AJHB that we're putting together, and this is one of the. You know, I, I've had the same and a tiny bit uh, experience, right? Where we all have this goal of being mm-hmm. uh, on interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary teams and doing these these wonderful projects. And Karen and I have talked to Josh Snodgrass about this right. and Michael Irvin about this. And, and we see these as sort of ideal scenarios for our careers, but the reality of working on these teams where there's a thousand cooks or even three cooks in a kitchen from yes. different disciplines is incredibly difficult.
2: Even, it is indeed.
1: even co-authoring a paper, with three people, if one person is not in charge, three people at the same career stage is so hard. It is. So I'm curious as to I don't know, let's let's turn it into a bit of a hackademics. Like <laughs> how do you navigate something like that? What would you would you do it again? Would you steer away or what Ooh. what sort of what have you learned from that experience?
2: That's a very good question. It's not the type of work I would continue doing because the 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 tensions are are sometimes very unsettling, and and we're all friends, right? Like, well, colleagues in friendly terms. Like, we we never first step the line, right? But um, in particular, as a human biologist who works with contemporary living people, you have to be very clear about your ethical stance, right? And um, different people see things very differently with regards to how you can relate to people, um, what is okay, what is not okay, um, how you can impose your views. And that's my anthropology talking, right? Like,
1: Yeah, that's hard, uh, right? When you hear very people hard. say things to your, your people you're working with and you're like,
2: oh, you can't do that, no. Exactly. And uh, and I think it's beyond being an anthropologist, but I think the experience of working in different settings uh, where differentials of power and views of life and priorities um, have taught me not to be too intrusive to people's lives. So I am very proud of the work that we did. I am very happy with the outcomes and the relationships that we managed to maintain with the community and in particularly i'm very pleased with having had students or people who were just beginning to interact and and it was their first experience in the field that i'm i'm very happy to have had the chance to discuss all these things with these that they saw it live that they lived it it was not just theoretical so they they realized all the the difficulties and the challenges that this kind of work involves. So I think that in terms of sharing the experience with people who were just beginning to live this life was probably one of the most fruitful aspects of that work. And in the future, I mean, sadly that funding ended. And as you can imagine, the current situation in Mexico is not very conducive to long-term work. Funding is hard to come by, and the current administration has very particular ideas of what kind of research needs to be funded. So I may not have any funding for the next (laughs) years, and therefore I'm trying to take this, you know, break in the row to to think again what I really want to do, what really moves me, what I would not want to repeat and put myself in a less of a complex mm. situation. And also, I mean, with COVID, having this one year of a totally change in dynamics allowed me to, again, focus on finishing up some writing and and um, kind of tying the bows in different bits of pieces. And I think I may close my collaboration with with mm. that project in particular. And for the future, I would like to continue working with different communities, but in a less intimate way. The work of the Manon meant that we were at the community every week, mm. we met everybody by name we knew everybody's stories so that has huge advantages because it gives it gives you a, a, a deep an amount of detail and nuance understanding of the community but at the same time it makes it really hard to keep your distance
1: and it's super intensive for you as yes. in terms of having a life and teaching and all of that i mean we all yeah one of the biggest reasons I, after grad school, decided to do my field work not in my own town is so that my family and my work life could be easily distinguished.
0: That's right. So, I, one, thank you all for putting up with the antics of my cat who just cannot seem to contain herself at the moment. There we go. That was quite a show, I gotta say. <laughs> that was a great. Rare... Well, you can see, see her like trying to burrow into my shirt, like just below the camera level. Anyway, you know, talking about these collaborations that are very intensive and have, you know, a lot of pros and a lot of cons. You, you mentioned bringing students in on this. And I'm really curious to, to kind of hear how that very... Intense uh, research experience, like how that shapes your mentorship and teaching both in the field and I guess, you know, in the classroom and the lab as well.
2: Yes, well, again, because it was such an intense um, teamwork, one quickly realizes that there's only one way to shape those relationships, and that's like horizontally and in equal terms. So I say my students, but they're really my colleagues. We just talk and address and consider and think of each other as equals in that respect and that has been very important for me because it's just a different dynamic that you generate and it makes it easier for you to see your shortcomings or your you know your good points in a way and it makes for a very honest interaction so that trust is always at the center of it and because it was a long-term I mean five, six years of a very detailed data collection by different people. So you really need to create an environment when people feel part of it in equal terms because the data that everybody is collecting will serve everybody. It's not like my project and I only take this part of data and then somebody else comes and say, oh, I'm interested only in this, so I will only contribute to this. We're all using the same database to which we contribute. So if you generate an environment where everybody feels that the quality of their work impacts their work and everybody else's work, then you just need to take everybody as seriously. Right. And so and that was that was fantastic because this community I we worked in with it's a very marginalized community it's a rural area it's a beautiful setting in terms of its geography and its landscape but it's um, an example of how life in rural mexico can be so when you get to know the people and their lives and their histories in such detail and you realize how harsh some people have it then you need you need a debrief every time you come back from the field. So luckily we needed to drive. We need to drive about an hour and 20 minutes to the site. So we usually talk on the way back about how we felt and what we saw and how we deconstruct that and how we place that in the, whole, in the context of the you know, current local and national and world <laughs> situation. So that makes for a very intimate um, relationship with the group that I mentored. And it was, a, it was a joy. It was really, it still is to have those people that are very motivated, very interested and very committed to the cause. And um, it's been great company. So I don't see it as me being the teacher or the mentor, but being kind of maybe someone who's a few steps ahead in experience and, and that's all but it's been it has shaped the way I I interact with people that I work with.
1: I, I have a weekly lab meeting and I find it is important for me to be able to <laughs> act like a human with, yes. with their students but I don't talk to them really like I do when I'm in a classroom because we we know each other better so we can we can vent a little, we can complain a little and then you know, circle back and qualify it and put it in context without people um, making undue assumptions. And, and it is a really important piece of how a lab works. It's just having some yes. space.
2: Yes. And that ha- it's, it's interesting you say that because I have lived, uh, during all those years that I did uh, seabird work, I lived in remote places, islands, for months in cabins where they're you know you had tiny tiny spaces because they was blowing a gale outside and I lived in very intimate you know spaces with people that I luckily ended up having as great friends and I still do but it could have been hell right and this kind of field work is not so much like you can you're together part of the week, you're in the car, you're in the field, you share very intense things, you talk about it, but there's always that distance. I, I really appreciate and I like my students, and some of them are my friends now, but it's not like we've had a shower together as I did in the field, right? So it's that distance that also allows for you to keep some of your thoughts to yourself and them to themselves.
1: So... I gotta say this so far is one of the cooler interviews we've done about projects like this. And it's because on the one hand, we hold some of these projects that everybody's heard of and that every, that have trained like 300,000 postdocs that are now our colleagues. And we're like, Oh my gosh, I feel so like, that's what I want to strive for. But The reality is most of us, arrive on a campus with nobody that we can work with and are expected to to start a project or have one going on and we have this panic and the institution and the tenure expectations and the fun all that kind of tends to shape what we end up doing. And I can hear I can hear the struggle in your voice that, that you went through and 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 the and the closure that you're you're looking for with that. But what I don't know and I'm curious about is what the tenure expectations and in the institutional structure that you're working within are like. Are you working with PhD and master's students? Do you have the same type of tenure structure that we do in the U.S.? What, to what extent does the institution shape your decision making in your process?
2: Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I am a very privileged person in that respect because the system in Mexico in general, but in my institution in particular, um, it's quite different from that tenure track in the US. There is obviously a structure that typically people need to advance and based on, yeah, your your work, your research, your teaching obviously, but also time and other non-academic related influences obviously. Um, in my case, when I came back from, from England, I spent a couple of times as a postdoc to a university in the UK. So I had that time of being part of the year in Mexico, trying to find my feet and being secure with a structure and a network and funds and a salary to, to work that transition. And I was very fortunate because in those days there was still a scheme by the Mexican national science uh, equivalent to the NSF where it, 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 meant it was aimed to repatriating scholars that had been trained or had stayed abroad to come back to the country and start up. So I had one of those scholarships or, or fellowships which made my transition into my institutional structure very smooth and very comfortable. So basically, once I I found myself with a job at the current university, I didn't have to worry much about tenure track. So that was a huge relief. In, co- in exchange, I had a... Um, newborn child (laughs) and you know the struggle that we all have to parent little people while trying to get a career off the ground so that has always been a very interesting uh, conversation I've had with myself when I every year at the HBA meetings I see you all my friends my colleagues the ones I've been meeting every year for 15 years and we've kind of grown together in many respects and I see my peers trying to balance all these you know uh, demands of life in a setting where the tenure track can be so demoralizing (laughs) yeah (laughs) and right so then I say okay sometimes I complain that I'm out in the sticks that I don't have anyone to talk to that you know, my current collaborators and friends and are people that I enjoy being with, but they're not really my academic network. Like they're not my intellectual hub. My intellectual hub is always abroad, is always away. And before COVID, it was like less visible because we didn't even talk as I do these days. And I was always, you know, that I was never sure that I was in the right place. But then every time I came back from the HPA, i Oh, yes, I am in the right place because uh-huh. where I am, I can be the head of the lion and not the tail mm-hmm. of the mouse, and I can do the research that I kind of like, and I don't have to worry about all the other things that my peers that are at the same stage of life have. So I am grateful for all my tiny piece of my space in the sticks, I think. I have never Overall, heard that. I think the balance is policy. I've never heard
0: that phrase of head of the lion rather than the tail of the mouse. I quite like it and I'm probably going to use it. it,
2: Oh, yeah, you're welcome. It was a quick translation of a very popular saying in Spanish. You'd rather be the, yeah, the, the, no, it's the other way around the head of the mouse and the tail of the, Lion. It's the other way around.
0: So with the Demano project kind of coming to a close and COVID issues and then, you know, obvious funding issues given the administration of Mexico, what's next? Uh where do you see things going forward for you?
2: Well, I have a um pile of data that I feel that I have a responsibility to work into pieces that can be read and can contribute something. So that will keep me busy. Um, in the last few months, I've also been working with um, Gillian Bentley, my former supervisor, and we've been turning out the papers that were remained from my PhD and other PhDs 20 years ago data. So that has been also very exciting to finally have, I don't know, I, don't, I wouldn't say I have the time, but you know, we've had the purpose Uh, With the help of other currently on standby students who, because of COVID, couldn't continue with their timetable in the field and so on. So we've had the pleasure of working with some colleagues who had the time and energy and have helped us. Get that data out. So I, I, I'm seeing this as a closure in many bits, and also because of COVID, I have had chance of reading um, different things that I would have never read, and to think and discuss about topics that I'm really interested in, you know, reproduction, sexual health, women's health, biocultural, et cetera, determinants of health. So I've been doing a lot of thinking, actually. And uh, I have, I see the next few years trying to move to other type of research, maybe kind of lower research. Yeah, maybe explore more methodological aspects, or I, I would really like to Thing. And instead of quantity, maybe just one piece of work every couple of years that is, you know, rounded and neatly tied and maybe contribute to the theory or in terms of methodology. And also, again, because of COVID and because of the recent experience with some of my mentors, maybe listening more carefully about what institution I've been collaborating with needs in terms of evidence to support their activities. So, Maybe just change the way, instead of me arriving with a question, maybe just seeing what there is for me to do and, and work there and, and see how that goes.
1: It's funny hearing you describe it that way. I, At the point in my career that I'm at, I'm so used to having a an underlying sense of urgency that both comes from my own personality, but has definitely been shaped by the institutional requirements yes. of tenure I'll be full professor in the fall and with covid and my kids graduating I keep stressing during weeks when I'm not being productive and I keep <laughs> reminding myself I don't have to do anything and I struggle with that feeling a lot and I I I hear uh, when I hear you say that you're going to just sit and wait I'm like why can't i i need to mentally wrap my brain around something like that that's yeah. really complicated it, it sounds easy but that's a complicated thing to do if you've been socialized and shaped in a certain way i think yeah
2: and i mean that doesn't mean that i have 24 hours to sit and think i wish i did right i, I it's well, we
0: already
1: talked busy. about the kids and all that <laughs> stuff
0: so yeah we...
2: or the teaching or the institutional requirements and and other levels but but, yeah, I think that I I may turn the unfortunate current environment for funding into a blessing <laughs> and then just uh, really do what I can with the resources I can and check how flexible and adaptable and, res- you know, resourceful I am in terms of coming up with good work. I think, yeah, I think I'm... Uh, I'm now in a position to to choose to do the work that I have now with more clarity realized that I like best.
0: The greater freedom of it all. So we've now kind of come to the point in the podcast where we wrap things up so that we don't have our, our poor producers editing over an hour <laughs> of podcast for their <laughs> yeah. own sanity. Um, mm-hmm. Because they're grad students with lots of draws on their time. Uh, we always like to close out with the, the kind of fun question of when you aren't... Yeah deep thinking about anthropology and parenting and all the other draws on your attention, what kind of fun things do you do, Alejandra?
2: Well, I love being outdoors. So I love being outdoors with my family, either on the bike or by the sea or by the river. We live in a beautiful area where it's not difficult to just jump in the car and go somewhere green. So I like doing that. I love Radio. I'm a big, big, long standing radio fan. So I spend a lot of time listening to spoken radio. I like, I love a good piece of, of radio and um, go for walks with my dog in the morning um, because I've spent so, as we have all in the last year, in front of a screen with, uh, you know, this virtual world that is. Just become kind of part of us. I like being out walking and listening to books. I didn't used to listen to books before because I usually had a bit of time to read, but by night time my eyes are cooked, mm-hmm. so I can't really spend any more time reading or using my short distance vision. So I love a good book and a good walk. I'm swimming
0: the uh yeah. the pandemic because i couldn't go to the gym to wait lift for so long i would mm-hmm. go on really long walks and i've been flying yeah. through audiobooks because of it and i've really enjoyed it except yeah. when it's when it's like a topic that's actually relevant to something i'm teaching or researching because <laughs> it turns out like the way audiobooks break up the chapters don't actually line up with the text chapters so if yes. i try to go back and find like a quote i never can and it drives me batty um yeah Anyway, that sounds lovely. Being able to go to the water and green spaces so quickly from home is a really, really nice thing. And as yeah. we're, we're, my husband just got home, so we can start packing for our camping trip this yeah, weekend. Yeah,
2: I'm jealous about that. I'm um, so
0: excited. Well,
1: we just learned from Jerry De Silva and his book, who we interviewed <laughs> last <laughs> week, that walking is good for your brain.
0: It is. It's good for yes. things. Not that we
1: already know that, but now we know the mechanism. So we can speak out on listening to books while we walk about how good it is to walk.
2: walk. (laughs) And I have to say that when... Um, The few times in my life where I've been really, really angry or really, really upset or really, really sad. Walking it off has come Mm -hmm. so naturally that it must be ingrained in our...
0: I feel like walking it off is a much better thing to do for a mental injury than a physical injury. The way people (laughs) always use walk it off. (laughs) It's an interesting thing to think about. Um, Anyway, Alejandro, this has been really wonderful chatting. And to see you, because it's been like two years since uh, we've seen you or something i know Uh, so this has been really
2: wonderful no thank you thank you and um it's lovely to see you